Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, digital agency owners and podcast listeners. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you currently stressed out, cash crunched, or fed up with your business? If you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem, or maybe that it's the area you live in, or maybe this market has become too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around, and I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now that it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who comes to you saying they need a website or Facebook ads or maybe a mobile app developed, but they don't even realize the deeper challenge or opportunity that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a YouGurus strategy call where we'll dig into those underlying issues and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your strategy call. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start your application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. All right, let's introduce today's guest. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver. I'm so excited you guys are joining us today. We have Greg Crabtree with us. Uh, Greg is a speaker, author, entrepreneur, and financial expert. Uh, he uh, used his entrepreneurial skills to found Crabtree Row and Burger, um, which is a firm dedicated to helping entrepreneurs build the economic engine of their business. And uh, maybe most notably, he has published a book, a, a favorite amongst entrepreneurs and agency owners called Simple Numbers Straight Talk Big Profits. It is a book that I have recommended countless times to many agency owners, many entrepreneurs to read, to wrap their minds around the numbers in their business. Welcome to the program, Greg. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's uh, it's nice that uh, people actually want to talk to an accountant. <laughs> Sometimes, just a little, like a little salt and pepper on my life as an entrepreneur. How how did you get started helping entrepreneurs build their economic engines? Why was that something that appealed to you? You know, it's really that thing that uh, it's kind of interesting. I was having this chat with somebody the other day and, and the same kind of thing of it took a lot of years for me to realize, you know, practicing both in public and private accounting in my early jobs uh, that I had to do all that to figure out what was wrong with the profession. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can't come out of school and think that you actually know that because you just need that life experience. So in, in one sense, I guess I am a slow learner, uh, but, um, it really kind of kicked into gear. I started my own firm in 1986, so it's been a, been a while, but it really was started in probably 97. I had a little bit of a bug to start focusing on consulting as a focus part of the practice, uh, got some training uh, by a group called the Results Accounting Systems that were based out of Australia, of all places. Uh, and that was an initial start. But there were things about their approach. It, it was a little salesy. And, uh, you know, I, 
you know, call me stupid, but I just have a hard time selling people something that I don't truly believe they need. And so, you know, so it's like, well, there's some of this stuff they need, but they were trying to sell it as a package. So roll forward a few years. And I, I probably the best thing I've ever done in my life is in 2001, I joined the entrepreneurs organization. So it's a group of entrepreneurs that, um, you get together, uh, both as a chapter and a forum and then also internationally as well. But you have to be, have a, a business that does a million in revenue and you have to be the founder of the controlling shareholder. So I just barely met those requirements in 2001 and joined and it kind of rocked my world because my initial forum of nine other people that I met with, I was in the Atlanta chapter um, and I live in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, which is about a four hour drive away. So think of this in a sense of an accountant doing this crazy thing. I'm driving four hours each month to Atlanta to forum, four hours in forum, four hour drive home. So not exactly, you know, productive, you know, from a billable hour standpoint, but it, it was the kernel that really started things because I couldn't do business with those nine forum members by forum rule. And so it created a safe environment. And much like a lot of the mastermind groups that, you know, that, that we've talked about before. And, and so in that group of not being able to do business with each other, I got nine very honest opinions of the accounting profession. None of those nine <laughs> people would actually recommend their current accountant. And so as a, as a net promoter score, since I'm talking to a marketing audience, you guys totally understand net promoter score. Oh, yeah. so, so as a profession, we scored zero. Uh, that, that's pretty harsh. And so I said, well, what is it that, that we're not doing? And, and first thing they said was obviously the April 15th tax day surprise. And I said, okay, I, I, I think I know how to fix that. What else? They said, we don't like being billed by the hour. And this is something that your audience needs to hear because I learned from that point that it got driven home to me that a billing by the hour has only two possible outcomes. I either give away my expertise or I charge for my ignorance. That's the only two possible outcomes. And, and so it forced us to really rethink our business model. So we, we primarily bill only on a fixed price basis today on either per project or an annual contract where we can scope services. Um, and the only thing we bill hourly now is just where we're doing staffing services of it, providing an outsourced bookkeeper or controller, you know, something like that. And even that, we try to get to a project that's fixed price as soon as we can. The third piece, though, was the damning indictment of my whole profession. And they said, oh, by the way, you see hundreds of businesses, most intimate details. You got to have some idea what works and what doesn't. And right there, they told me what was wrong because here I, I'm, I'm processing the most sensitive business information in the world for hundreds of businesses. And I think I'm doing tax returns and financial statements. And I've got the very kernel of economic data that the Federal Reserve economists would kill for. Mm. But see, the difference is, you know, the accountant looks at it and says, well, who's going to pay me to analyze it? And what, they, <laughs> and what they fail to understand is I don't need to have direct payment to analyze it. That becomes intellectual property that as I start to study it and draw inferences and ideas and concepts, you know, you're not revealing, um, you know, proprietary information. You're just study, studying economics, you know, from that standpoint and what in, in creating at least frameworks that entrepreneurs have been asking their accountants for for years. And the accountant says, their answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and, and when you, when you said, so you're, you're basically saying 
because you had access to all these different businesses, us mm-hmm. as business owners are saying, what what should my profit be? What should exactly. I be paying myself? Yeah. What yeah. should my gross margins be? Not just the answer that I, I'm not going to throw my CPA on the bus, but I have had CPAs mm-hmm. give me the it depends answer. Yeah, yeah. And they'll, they'll tell you what it is, but they won't tell you what it needs to be. And so, so that started the process. So I've done multiple study projects over the years since this aha moment happened. And, uh, you know, the first study project, you know, was actually the genesis for the original book. Uh, and, and so that was really where I kind of threw out the hypothesis that for the average business, 5% profit, you're on life support, 10%, you're a good business, 15%, you're a great business. Now, that works for about 70% of the businesses for the most part, but there's still 30% that that doesn't work for. So I had to continue searching. And to be quite honest, this is, this is part of what the next book's going to be. I've got a, a current study project that I think I've actually hit upon the key performance indicator for all businesses, and it's one that nobody talks about for privately held businesses, and it's called Return on Invested Capital. And, and so if you think about it in a sense that what establishes your profit target as a percent of revenue or even a percentage of gross margin, we pick whatever number you want to base it on, that's actually irrelevant. The number that you have to generate is somewhere between 50 and 100% return on invested capital year over year without selling the business. And hmm. that's, that's the secret formula. And we've tested this on hundreds of businesses that we work with. And so far, in terms of all U.S. businesses that I consider a viable business, I have yet to see a return on invested capital less than 50%. And the average is, uh, we've got a current economic model that we monitor that's 50 companies that are all over the U.S., all different industries. Uh, So that's kind of my economic indicator base. Um, And that, that number, the average is about 75%. You know, some years it pushes up to 90, some years, but it, it's about 75%. So between 75 and 100. And, and so think about that. I mean, your business, this, this is the part that I never had the, the, you know, the hard data to win this argument, but now I do. Your business has the potential to be 100% CD. Who wouldn't want 100% return on your CDs, right? That sounds like a good investment for sure. Yeah. And, and I yeah. definitely want to have us go into this, uh, I just wrote down ROIC. So, mm-hmm. um, yep. but I, I want to almost like jump way back into maybe some simpler ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Cause you mentioned the five, 10 and 15%. That works for 70% wow. of businesses. But mm-hmm. I know when I've mentioned that to people, a lot of small agency owners, the, mm-hmm. what they tell me back is, oh, 10%. Are you kidding me? I've got 80% margins. But they're not paying themselves. That's right. Yeah, you you, get, and that, and you're right. And that is the, you know, the first, the first chapter in my original book is the one that every person listening to this podcast that they haven't read it, you know, they need to take a look at that. Is it's the clearing the distortions and the the number one distortion in all business financials of privately held businesses is owner compensation. So if you don't pay yourself a market-based wage, you're lying to yourself. And so the, I, I have a digital agency that I, I actually use as a case study a lot of times. And when they came to me originally, they were doing $600,000 a year in, in revenue. And they said they were at 25% profit. I said, really? 
well, uh, and they said, but we're having trouble with cash flow. Oh, <laughs> say twenty five percent profit cash flow. Costs. And, and they right. they also probably aren't paying their uh, you know their uh, their own credit card bills or or whatnot right. as well, right? Yeah. So so essentially, I I looked at their numbers and I said, oh well, here's the problem: the no the the amount that you're paying yourselves, you're taking as a distribution, it's not hitting your P and L. So let's reclass that as compensation which was still actually a little on the wimpy side, to be quite honest. Um, and, and I said, so now you're at 4% profit. I think we figured out the reason why you have a cash flow problem. And, and, I, and so I enlightened them on the idea of saying, listen, here's the deal. We're going to keep your wages. So the same distributions that you got last year, we're going to make that your salary for this year. So it was two owners that were making about 60000 a piece. And, and I said, we're going to keep you at that number because you got to prove to me you're worth that. Right mm. now, that's still a question mark. And I said, now, here's what you have to do in gross margin to make, to just earn the salary that you have. And so we, we did what we call a bottom-up targeting session with them. And, and it was only 100000 So they only had to do $100,000 more in gross margin. So gross margin for a, an agency is after you've paid outside contractors. And mm-hmm. so what, what's the internal top line of money that's coming to you? And so that's the number we based it off of. And so I said, I modeled it out and I said, you, you only got to do a hundred thousand more with the, with, uh, with no more increase in labor of the team that you have. Guess what? They did it. And now they earned their salary. They got a 19% net tr- real net income number. And I said, good job. You need a raise. So we bumped them uh, up to about a hundred thousand a piece in wages, uh, which all of a sudden set their new target to be substantially higher, uh, than, than what it was. So now they had to go out and, and do, I forget what the number is, probably close to a million dollars. And, um, and the next time they missed it. Now they were still 20% profit when it was done, but what they failed to do was hire fast enough to meet the growth. So they, in their case, they were able to, to find the work. They were just slow in adding the labor to support it and stay at that same rate. And so they licked their wounds a little bit and, and they realized they were, like I said, they were still profitable, but they, they left money on the table because they didn't, didn't increase capacity fast enough. So we reset it, says, let's do it. All right. So still good job. You need a raise. So we bumped them up to about 125,000 a piece in the third year. And now they went out and, and they had to get about a million three in terms of gross margin. And they actually beat it. They actually, you know, got slightly higher than that. And this time they hired, they realized they had to constantly be hiring. And that agency has continued since that time. They've, they've never really been below 15% profit, you know, ever since. And so generally, I would say that actually agency targeting profit after market-based wages are, are adjusted into it, we actually recommend 15 to 20% you know, for those companies. And the reason for the 15 to 20% is because marketing is, we, we, we consider all marketing companies, the canaries in the coal mine. So we, we specifically really pay close attention to our marketing clients to give us an early warning system to the economy because marketing is the first cost turned down in a downturn. It's the first cost turned up in an upturn. And so, so we, we pay very, very close attention to our marketing clients. Uh, from that regard. Now, the reason why we push that profit target up a bit to 20% instead of 15 is because one out of five years, you're going to have a crappy year. 
uh, because of just a, a the market's going to hand you a raspberry that you didn't cause. And so so you got to make it up in those other years in that process. I find it so interesting when it comes to setting owner compensation that there is there's a lot of mindset trash and uh, other problems that probably aren't what most CPAs deal with. I mean, I you know you guys yeah. are obviously proponents of the owner yeah. should get paid more. They should be paid a competitive wage so they show up differently yes. in their business. Uh, sometimes when I've taken people through this exercise. Uh, they see all of a sudden a you know what they should be getting paid and their business isn't profitable and you know yeah. I mean I, I hope the, that that kind of lights a feelings yeah it, it does hurt their feelings right I mean, it, it it can be a wake up call and I think a lot of people are avoiding that for I don't know what reason but it's uh, you know well, they like to nobody, look at the individual nobody projects likes to, nobody likes to be told that your baby's ugly. <laughs> so. But sometimes the truth hurts. You know, the, the, it, it is just a, a addressing things as they are, not as you wish them to be. And so we, we like to be purveyors of economic truth. And so generally accepted accounting principles is, is more of a, a technique to hide the truth and to illuminate it, I believe. And so we really want to get, you know, really, you know, very direct, you know, with our clients to help them understand that because that's really what causes positive change. And, and so whether we need to break an accounting rule to, to really show them the true economics of something uh, or, uh, or just ex express to them. A lot of people, you know, uh, play games with their salary because they, they tell themselves the tax story. Oh, well, it's to save taxes. Really? I, I you know, I, I'm telling you, we're batting 100%. Anytime that we've gotten a client to pay a little bit more in payroll taxes, they actually have ended up making more money in salary and more profit. I've never had it not turn out that way because you're paying, you're paying yourself based on truth and, and you're going out and earning it. Yeah. And, and there's, I mean, it's an easy fallacy of mm. people trying to save taxes by spending more money, which if, you know, <laughs> they're trying to save 35% by spending a hundred percent or whatever the number is yeah. for them. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, it, it's just one of those that everybody loves to use tax as the excuse. And we, we tend to like to do the actual math and show people, you know, the, the, the before and after effect of things. And, and so, but what it really comes down to, too, is, you know, if any of your, your listeners are multi-owner businesses, here's, here's the uncomfortable thing that probably some of your listeners are going to have to deal with. And I'm going to just say it and they got to live with it. I've never seen two people worth the same amount of money. So if you've got an agency with two 50-50 owners, I am... Um, the, the example that I gave you of the, the case study of the client that we worked with, they were two 50-50 owners. And by that third year, I had to have a very uncomfortable conversation with them. I said, hey, guys, um, you know, I put this in the book, so I'm really kind of obligated to bring it up. I've never seen two people worth the same amount of money. Um, and so one of you, and I don't know which one, I want you guys to determine it, but one of you is getting the short end of the stick. Because if you're both making the same wage, because you're 50-50 owners, that's not fair. Because you know, neither one of you are doing the exactly the same job and are, and are the same level of performance. And to their credit, they were really, they embraced the idea. We helped them pull some wage surveys and, and establish an executive comp structure that respected the role that each one of them played and each one of them embraced the responsibilities that went along with that role. 
And ever since then, this was probably five, six years ago now, uh, they've never made the same amount of money each year. Hmm. And, and the business has thrived. Because if it goes back to Adam Grant wrote a book called Give and Take, and he writes a great blog on this idea. Adam Grant and, the, and Dan Pink are two of my favorite kind of behavioral economists. And Adam Grant said, it's not about equality in pay. It's about equitability. And so not, you know, there's no job title on the org chart called owner. You know, there's CEO. There's head of sales, head of marketing, head of operations, head of finance, head of IT, head of HR. You know, so and in in a small business, you're wearing all of those hats. In a two-owner business, you're divvying it up, you know, to some degree. All of those jobs are worth different amounts of money. Just go pull a wage survey and you'll see. And and so you create a blended job role based on the ones that you're responsible for. That I mean, wage survey really common thing that I hear from people. What should I pay myself? Uh, yeah. Any specific tools or things you can recommend yeah. for our listeners to dip their toe in to find some of that information? Yeah. So publicly available data, I mean, for lack of better resources, glassdoor.com, uh, uh, salary.com, payscale.com are publicly accessible. Some of them have some paid versions that you can pull a survey with. We actually use a service called Economic Research Institute Salary Assessor, so we, we pay a hefty subscription fee. So it, it really is a world-class uh, salary survey system. So we can pull a wage survey by job position from dog catcher all the way to CEO. Um, you know, and so we, and we can pull it by role, by years of experience, by company size, by sick code, and by location. Uh, and so a lot of our, we provide that service to our clients. And so a lot, we do a lot of work in compensation planning because of that, of helping people create this equitable environment of saying, here's the value of the job. Now let's talk about performance. Because once I establish the market-based wage, this, this is the equilibrium that I search for and, and my team searches for all the time. We want to pay a market-based wage for market-based performance. So if I don't pay a market-based wage and I'm below, I can only expect below market performance. And if I, and what causes me to lose good people is when I'm trying to hold a person down for less than a market wage and they have that ex outstanding above market performance and you create an equilibrium. And there's, there's too much availability for people to kind of have an idea of what people will make. Uh, you know, and, and that causes, you know, that talent to look elsewhere. But you also run into the, un, the inconvenient uh, understanding at times of a person wants more and more wages and they're producing less and less. And we, we call that um, the, uh, 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 you know, a, a zone, that we call it the replacement zone. And it's just kind of an un, unpleasant concept, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, there, there's a point that not, not everybody has increasing output. And, you know, we're, we're big on the out, you know, we believe the number one driver of profitability is productivity of labor, whether it's direct labor or management labor, but we can measure productivity of both groups. And so the idea is there's a point that whether it's lack of interest, lack of desire, um, or, you know, or, or just, you know, somebody getting, you know, having kind of a negative mindset that, that a person's pay starts to outstrip their performance. And so the market-based wage of somebody's salary might be, say, 75000 
but they're producing less than somebody would produce that say 50,000 of a similar role, you know? And so you, you got to have those unpleasant conversations. The reality is, I think, I mean, we're very open with compensation, you know, when we talk with clients and, and encourage them to be open, have these open discussions with their team. And what we find is, is people move towards better teammates, you know, that work on their team that understand if I want an increasing wage, I've got increased performance. There is no, we, we, we try to drive out the idea that there's no such thing as a cost of living raise. I could care less what your cost of living is. That's your problem. You know, if, if, if I would contend that if you lose your job, you'll find out just how discretionary your, your cost of living is. You'll make some different choices because you don't have a job. And, and so don't tell me about cost of living. No, what, I, what you do can tell me about is market. Tell me, tell me what other people are offering. And, and here's kind of a, an, an, an insight as to kind of our thinking on this. I want to pay people between the 50th and the 75th percentile of the market wage because that's, that's the logical wage base, you know, that's there. And so the idea is probably if I'm going to give somebody maybe even an incentive of some variable pay, I probably want to make their base somewhere between the 50 and 60th percentile. But if I give them a, some variable pay for performance, that variable pay never pushes them beyond the 75th percentile. Pretty much once you get past 75th, 80th percentile, that's the stupid wages that unprofitable people are paying people that aren't productive. And, and so let, let the, let the other people go out of business paying those wages because it, it just makes, you just, you just can't make your business model work. You can't be profitable and, and pay at that level. So far we've touched on, uh, Maybe, maybe three, maybe four un- potentially unpleasant conversations. One <laughs> around owner compensation and having to uh, figure out that they're not, uh, many people are not paying themselves a market based wage. We've yeah. had to figure out that it might not be a tough conversation around whether or not we actually are profitable or breaking through that illusion of, of profitability. Uh, yeah. We've had an uncomfortable conversation so far with potentially a business partner if we're both getting paid the same thing, and yeah. uh, and now with with teams. So you you guys, uh, you know, you're you're doing a good job at bringing uncomfortable conversations into businesses. Yeah, you know, it's it's you know it's it's one of the things we're really good at. Um, which, which I think you know, is, it, I mean, I think that most. I mean, I was yeah. just on on the phone with a, a client, and yeah. she was talking. I mean, we were doing a, a strategy session, and. Uh, we were looking over some numbers, business performance numbers, uh, you know, just 90 day kind of check-ins. How do we do for the quarter? That kind of thing. And mm-hmm. she admitted that if, you know, if we weren't, if I wasn't pushing her to do that, she probably wouldn't even be looking at her numbers. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that, I mean, you guys obviously, you know, you, you swim in this area of forcing businesses or inviting them into to looking at their numbers. Yeah. One, well, and, well, and the other thing is, and in, in, in full disclosure, we, we eat our own cooking too. And, uh, you know, so we have a business coach that, that tells us the same stuff we tell our clients. And, and we realize that we can't do it for ourselves. We actually hire a business coach that has made all the difference in the world of helping us grow on just a, just incredibly rapid rate. Uh, but it's pushed us to meet the same profitability standards we ask of everybody else. There's a couple more sections of your book and platform that I want to touch on. You mentioned labor productivity. This question comes up all the time around, you know, how do I know if I have enough 
you know, forecasted revenue or cash flow to hire people? How many people should I even have on my team? When can I be able to hire? When should I be able to hire? Uh, how, and I know your book addresses this, but you know, in kind of a, a summarized format, how do we address, you know, labor productivity, but also just, I think in the book you call it salary cap. Yeah. And, and so really it's kind of a simple idea of taking a sports idea, whether it's soccer, basketball, football, NFL is a clean example because all 32 NFL teams pay exactly the same amount of wages every year. And why is it the New England Patriots make it to the playoffs a disproportionate times to the Cleveland Browns? They used to say the Oakland Raiders, but the Raiders have been much better of late. You know, so, um, you know, so the idea is, as you're looking at that, you know, you have a very clean picture and there's one reason it is the productivity of labor, not only their direct labor being their team, but their management labor is more effective. They hired the right people. They coached them the right way. They deployed the best plan. And so it's a really clean economic example of, of what, uh, what goes on. And I was at an event where Jonathan Kraft, uh, the president of the team, you know, was talking about what makes Bill Belichick the best coach in the NFL. And he says, it's not about X's and O's. And everybody can argue who's the best. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, he, I think he's got more rings. So, so you look at that and he says, well, it's not the X's and O's because at that level, all of the, the coaches know it. It's that Bill Belichick knows how to manage the salary cap better than any coach in the NFL. And, and I think that's an, you, you can't argue that. And, and so as a business, what you have to do is look at it and say, you know, your, your answer first lies in the data that you already have. You look back in history. The, when we start a consulting project with a client, the first thing we do is look back at their historical performance for the last two to three year period. In there are, are good and bad examples. What worked, what didn't. Uh, and if we can get down to productivity by person even. You know, primarily I, I can get to productivity by direct labor and management labor in any business. Um, if your business has time keeping data by project, you know, we can actually get it down to by customer and, and, and potentially even by person. Uh, so in my business, I know my labor productivity for the, for the firm. I know it by client. I know it by division. I know it by employee. And now there, you still have to apply some interpretation, but the fact that once you monitor that on a moving basis, I get to see who is trending in more productivity, who's trending to less. And I get to also decide, did I cause that? I always look inward first. Did I cause that as the leader of the business? And it's not the employee's fault. And then sometimes it's a, it, then I gave them every opportunity and they didn't avail themselves of it. And, and so, so to a certain degree, you really create this very simple economic environment of knowing um, uh, you know, one of the, the, the simple examples that we, we work with a lot of companies in the, uh, the in-home senior care marketplace, and we have a simple metric for that group. Whatever you pay the caregiver, I got to build the customer two times that number. I mean, we, we doesn't matter who you work for. If you're independent, you're in the franchise. Guess what? If you don't have a two labor efficiency ratio for your direct labor, you will not be profitable. And, and, and that's something that we can just tell people from an authoritarian standpoint because we've just seen so many data points in that industry. Now, there's other industries that you can apply it a little differently and you can, you can approach it a little different. But what you can do is once you create these patterns, all you're doing is looking for pattern recognition. What's a good pattern? What's a bad pattern? Let's eliminate the bad. Let's find more of the good. It's not rocket science at the end of the day. And, and I'm really glad you brought up that 
labor efficiency ratio uh, concept because so often I see people where they hire a contract developer for $50 an hour and mm-hmm. they charge their clients 75 or maybe they hire the, the designer for $85 mm-hmm. and they charge their client 100 and they're like, well, I'm making $15 per hour on their work. That sounds great. Uh, but they're not, right? Because there's fixed right. operating expenses. There's uh, exactly. even just basically credit card fees or, or whatever, right? And all of a sudden you right. work backwards in the math and they would have been better off just not taking on the contract because they, they are actually paying money out to, to fulfill yeah. it. Uh, so that number, that labor efficiency ratio, you said for the in-home care, basically mm-hmm. it's a factor of two. Whatever you're paying the in-home right. care person needs to be, you need to be billing twice as much to the customer. Do you right. have any heuristic like that for agencies or any, I mean? Yeah, yeah actually for an agency, for most agencies that are, I would say probably 3 million or less in total revenue, the number we start with is a three. You know, so now when I say a three, that means, Here's the sum of the revenue that that resource is going to bill in a year's time, and here's 100% of their gross wages. It's not on an hour-by-hour basis because you fool yourself into the time you get into this utilization calculation and all that. Utilization is, a, is an indicator number. It's not truth because I can have somebody who's fully utilized that just does bad work. That doesn't help me. And at the end of the day, it's just, you know, labor efficiency is quite simply, you know, after I paid any out-of-pocket expenses, so, you know, so out-of-pocket expenses plus what I bill the client, that's revenue. Out-of-pocket expenses and or any other support ex- external to the business, that would be my cost of goods sold. So the net of those two is gross margin. So gross margin per total dollars I pay that employee for the whole year, that that's my... That's my labor efficiency ratio. And so if I pay that person $50,000, I got to bill $150,000. And I don't care when they do it. You know, they're not going to do it evenly, rateably 12 months out of the year. They're going to have some good months. They're going to have some bad months. And this goes back into, so, you know, when you talk about months too, is that's why we're fans of what we call rolling 12 data. It's not, you know, I I just despise anybody that produces a year-to-date financial statement. I mean, it's the most worthless piece of data except for calculating how much taxes I might owe. But short of that, it's worthless. You know, what what I have is every month ends a 12-month accounting period. And so what we're constantly monitoring with our team and anybody else we we help monitor is we're looking at productivity on a rolling 12 basis first. That's the highest form of truth. Secondly, rolling three is the next highest form of truth, and then monthly would be the, the next. And, and so you always want to start with the highest value of data and work your way backwards to the shortest, most variable, eh, kind of, I got to question this, you know, in that process. The, but, I mean, the rolling concepts, when I implemented that, it, it just changed my whole view of where our business was at. I mean, I, I literally used right. to wait until the end of the year when our CPA would run our books to figure out how much money we made that year mm-hmm. versus knowing kind of each month basically how the year is trending. So you know by, you know, if yeah. you're going to, if you've break, broken through your goal, you, you kind of know by a much earlier standpoint in time. And I mean, now we look at like rolling 30 every week for our monthly. Oh. So, you know, the PL yeah, and, isn't and, even and, a major surprise. Well, and this goes back to your earlier question about how do you predict who you're going to need. And that rolling 12 is telling you, because I, I can tell you that, you know, when we started, we were about 2.7 million in revenue in 20, 
2015. And so we said, okay, we, we got to, you know, we were approaching <laughs> what I've called the black hole. And so the black hole is, is a business between a million and five million. And guess what the deepest, darkest moment of the black hole is? Three million. <laughs> you know, so, so we're staring, we're staring into the abyss. And so we said, okay, so our business coach, we, we just changed to a different business coach that year and he helped us get a good plan together. And so what we're, we're monitoring, we don't monitor the year of 2016, we're monitoring rolling 12 information. And so we actually hit 3 million in rolling 12 uh, in September of that year. Now, on a normal planning basis, people say, oh, we hit our goal, let's, let's relax. It's like, well, no, let's keep going. And so, you know, we beat it again in October. We beat it again in November. We beat it again in December. And, it, and we just kept going. And so it's really kind of changed my mindset in terms of setting targeting. Targeting is not about a calendar year of performance. It's about what is the next rolling 12 attainment level I'm trying to hit. And so, so three, we beat that one in September that year. We said, well, okay, well, let's get to 4 million. Well, guess what? We hit 4 million in October of the next year. And guess what the next one is? Well, the next one is five million. Well, I can already tell you that we'll hit five million in this year because on a rolling twelve basis, we're we we finished last year like four point two million in, in revenue. We're already a, on a rolling twelve basis. We're a million two ahead of the previous year. Wow! You know, year, year over year, and so that I mean, unless I do something to totally screw it up, and hopefully I won't do that. But but I can already tell you that we'll be at 5 million somewhere October to November ish, you know, all trends, you know, considered. And so it gives me confidence and, and we're, we're hiring like a drunken sailor, you know, <laughs> that, you know, and, and it's, I mean, and, and this is a tough labor market for every industry, you know, that's out there, you know, but it, it tells us why we have to, you know, it's like my client I shared the example earlier of them not hiring fast enough. We we're constantly looking for people, because we can't let up because we know that unless something changes that growth trajectory, we got to keep going. I want to make sure we, the nice thing is, is the profit. And this is the important part growth without the profitability sucks. So, you know, let, let, you know, we got to, you know, we got to maintain that profitability or else let's pull back on the lever and get and fix it to grow. When I'm not profitable, I'm just making matters worse. I want to make sure to touch on one more topic that you talk about, which is the forces of cash flow. Mm-hmm. And you simplify this beautifully. And I, I just, you know, speaking of profit, speaking of, uh, you know, growing yeah. responsibly, uh, what are those forces of cash flow? And so think about it like this, that, you know, the first and foremost, you know, we got to focus to get you profitable because otherwise, if you're if you're growing and you're not profitable, you got to have some outside funding because you're essentially you know a one fuse rocket that must achieve escape velocity. Or you're going to blow up and crash and burn, you know. So that you know those are tech businesses and and those kind of things. So those of us who do the real everyday stuff, we've got to be profitable at every stage along the way, and and so in that process, that means I got to be profitable. Well, then I get to make a decision: what do I utilize those profits for? And the first thing I must use those profits for is I got to pay taxes. If I don't, if, if I have profit, I'm going to owe some tax. And, and I made a very bold statement in the simple numbers book of saying the number one key performance indicator of true profitability is how big of a check did you write to the IRS? Because if I didn't write a check to the IRS, only one of two things happened. 
I either was not profitable or I cheated and both are bad. And, and so get over it. I mean, you want to, I want to be writing seven figure checks to the IRS because <laughs> that means something really, really good happened in that process. And, and so, so that's, and, and the key to that one is making sure that I'm, that goes back to that April 15th tax day surprise that my form mates told me about is we work really hard that every month, every time we do a call, every time we do update a model, which is at least quarterly and some clients monthly, we're always setting aside the money for taxes and getting it out of their hands and saying, now we don't send it into the IRS until the rules say you have to, to, to avoid a penalty. But I don't want you to mix up that and either take a dis- distribution and consume it when you shouldn't or mix it up into your operating expenses when it really should be set aside for taxes. And, and so that has been a huge, huge key that I think our clients have really appreciated giving them clarity about that on an as-you-go basis because taxes are so much out of time sync with everything else you do. So once you do that piece, then the next thing is, oh, well, am I fully capitalized? And so that means that I want to pay off line of credit debt. Now, term debt, as long as term debt is supporting a, a real piece of equipment or a useful asset over its useful life, I'm, I don't count that. that. That's just almost like self-leasing. But line of credit debt is crack cocaine for entrepreneurs. And, and so you've got to get that line to zero. I'm fine with you having a line, and I want you to use a line of credit when you have rapid growth that essentially what a true line of credit is designed for is to reach out and cash a receivable and bring it back into the present. And then when I get paid by the customer, I use what their payment was to repay the line. That's what a line was designed to do in the first place. But that's not how most people do it. So, so the key is I want you to get that line to zero. But then after you get that to zero, then I want you to get to two months of operating expenses in cash with nothing drawn on the line. And that's our definition of a fully capitalized business. Once I get you to that point, then you can start to harvest the profitability and the fourth uh, uh, force of cash flow is then taking distributions and diversifying wealth. Now, from our study, that 50 company data set, I can tell you this, that 50 company data set, which is is about 250 million of of revenue uh, to give you the size and significance of it. So it's a pretty good data set. What did they do with their profit? Well, what we discovered was it's a 40-30-30. So this group of $250 million worth of activity annually, they were on the three-year period that we monitored it, they grew between a, the lowest growth year was 15%, highest growth year was 20. So they grew between 15 and 20%. They paid 40% out in taxes. They distributed 40%, 30% after tax, and they kept 30% for growth, self-funded their growth and their cash balances went up. So in, in, in these businesses that we're talking to today, they actually fit quite nicely in the 40-30-30 model. 40% for tax, 30% for you can take out as a distribution after you're fully capitalized, but you got to get to fully capitalized first. But once you're there, you can go 40-30-30. And then if you build up to a point that I'm just sitting around with excess cash and, and I got more than I need, I can take an extra pop every now and then. But that two-month core capital number is now giving our clients a clear picture of when is too much and when is not enough in terms of how much cash I should have in my business. I, 
I'm so glad that I made sure we covered that because those four forces of paying your taxes, repaying the debt, reaching your core capital target, taking those profit distributions, and then that 40-30-30 model, that's definitely ending up in our show notes so people can uh, be aware of that because I feel like after paying yourself at least a market-based wage so that you can do the work in the business properly, that those benchmarks and and thinking about those things are uh, are hugely important. So thank you for that, yeah. Greg. Yeah, great. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, and that, that's proven, you know, because that's that's the thing that, that was the common question that the client would ask their accountant and saying, well, how much cash is too much? Well, said, well, it depends. Well, no, it doesn't depend. There is a there is a bright line number. We just had to do some research to say what is it, and and that that has been a very reliable target, especially for a three and three million and under you know business of even up to five million, um, you know, and well, I mean. It, it, sometimes it's even more than two months as the businesses get bigger, but it's more so that they're just accumulating cash for other strategic purposes to then go deploy it. So uh, it's it's been a really good concept. Are you uh, ready for our lightning round? Just four quick Absolutely. questions to, to kind of uh, slam through here. Absolutely. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? Well, the best advice I ever received was... Uh, it was actually learning how to delegate and replace yourself. Um, you know, and that came from a lot of different sources, but I actually was asked that question by an EO uh, friend of mine who's in his early thirties, but has already developed multiple successful businesses. And the most intuitive question that I've been asked from, from, and he asked it was, he said, if you had to go back and talk to your 30 year old self, what would you tell him? And, and that was it is I, I, I would have to tell myself to delegate and move to the higher value task. You know, it's when you delegate, it's not so you can sit around and, and answer email and, and surf the web. It is to, to shift your time and focus to higher value things. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Hmm. Personal habits. Uh, I would say a thirst for learning. Um, you know, college was a, a pimple on a gnat's ass uh, in terms of learning. And to somewhere early on in the middle of my first job in public accounting, well, I actually, I take it back. I, I, uh, I, I got hired by one of our clients to be a controller for a bank, and I started reading the Wall Street Journal. And back in the Wall Street Journal back then was a much better publication than it is now. But they did such a good job of in economic information and in def, in defining terms. I learned more reading the Wall Street Journal than I ever did from any textbook I had in college. And then that kind of sparked something. And then it became, you know, you know, finding the best thinkers, listening, uh, reading, um, you know, just always searching to what, what more can I find out? And, and like I said, you know, coming to this, this uh, understanding of hanging out with people that are better than me, uh, in, in learning from them and then learning how to give back to people that also want to join the crowd, you know, so that, uh, you know, I think that has, that has been it because I mean, I, I'm 60 years old and I feel like I got another 20 years to go because I mean, I, I, I probably feel like I'm 40, um, uh, in, in reality and because I love what I do. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed to get to do this every day. Greg, can you share an internet resource or a tool or app that you use that you think our listeners would find valuable? Ooh, internet resource or app. Uh, 
Oh gosh. Um, you know, it, you know, some of the things that we have access to, you know, are well either paid services or um, um, that we use in our our work. Oh gosh. Um, what's a what's a favorite app on your phone? We'll we'll we'll, we'll make it oh, easier. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, my favorite app is my my golf shot app that I track my golf scores in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it kind of goes to this idea of all right, so. I was a horrible golfer. I started playing in college and I mean, I was just, I really stunk. And in 15 years into playing golf, I finally attended my first, first golf school. And I immediately went from about a 30 handicap to a 12 that one summer still couldn't hit the ball very well, but I learned how to play better. And, and then that is produced, you know, I've, I've bounced somewhere between a, you know, about a five and a six handicap, you know, for the most part, uh, and, and at 60 years old, I hit the ball farther than I've ever hit it in my life. And, and so to me, it, it is this aspect of whatever you do, wh- whatever sport, whatever activity. I mean, to me, golf is just as integral to my thinking process as business because I'm always trying to figure it out. And I use it as a, as a diversion because golf is the one thing that actually takes my mind totally off of business, but yet I approach it almost in the same way. And, and so uh, but it is that thing of constant improvement is I can, I can be better. I can do that. I, you know, and, you know, and, and it's kind of, kind of overcoming self-limiting beliefs, you know, because that, you know, my, my biggest self-limiting belief when I first started my own practice was I didn't think that I could win work. Mm. And, you know, and it's like, I mean, to give you kind of how crazy that is, we literally get probably two qualified inbound leads a day and I don't do anything. I mean, I, we do things to get it, but not overtly. I mean, I, I show up and I do talks. I do these kind of things. I was going to say, you, you know, have I, a, a well-published and well-read book. So it's not like you're yeah. sitting on the beach, but yeah. Yeah. But, but the thing is, is we're not, we're not actively intentionally marking one because I mean, you know, if I, as I say, if I punched the monkey, I would probably have more business than I could actually <laughs> respond to. And, and, and so, so the idea though, is that I, that, but it was that self-limiting belief early on that I couldn't attract business. And, 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 and I, I would probably tell your audience is, um, you know, once you've kind of developed your craft, if you just continue to search to be better, be better, be better and, and serve and, 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 you know, it's always, it's like I said early on, I want to do the things that people need. I don't want to sell them anything they don't need. And, and I think that ought to be every business's mantra, you know, from the standpoint, there's way too many people out there selling people what they do rather than what they need. Yeah. And just, just think how great the economy could be if we only did what people need and, and charge them a fair market price for it. It's like, man, that, that would be nirvana. <laughs> and Craig, last lightning round question. What book would you recommend and why? Ooh. That's a good question. Um, I would say the probably the book I reference the most is Jack Stack's Great Game of Business. Um, and, you know, I, I did the uh, Springfield Remanufacturing uh, plant tour back in the late 90s. And I was so struck by machine operators that knew balance sheet P&L and cash flow statements better than any accountant that I'd ever met. And, and, and 
for your readers who don't know about uh, Great Game of Business, it's it's a form of open book management. That I mean, we don't recommend it to everybody because uh, if it, there's two requirements that we believe for open book management. Uh, the owner must be able to defend the data, and two, you can't have any protected species on payroll, which means I can't be paying people who aren't really earning their pay. Mm. And and so so it's a philosophy, that, and we operate in a very aggressive open book culture because actually we don't hide salaries. Everybody knows what everybody makes. Everybody knows what the firm makes. Everybody in the firm knows that, or they can know it. We don't hide it. And so... So from that standpoint, it causes an openness and transparency that you have to run based on a philosophy that you believe in. Um, and and I, I just think Jack has built a wonderful company. It's not perfect, you know, but I, I just have so much of an appreciation for what I've learned from their concepts. And actually, I'm speaking uh, at their conference this year in, in one of their breakout sessions. Uh, but they're, they're one that I, I've, uh, I've, Jack Stack, who, who uh, is the CEO of Springfield Remanufacturing or SRC Holdings is now the holding company. They've got multiple businesses that all operate under this philosophy. I, I, I think it's just one of those timeless pieces of work that because it's so conceptually sound, I believe. Um, you know, so that, that would be the one I would put on everybody's list. Nice. We will link out to that in our show notes. So for our listeners, if you want to check out that uh, link to that book, uh, as well as uh, Greg's book, Simple Numbers, we'll link to that. We'll have uh, some highlights and takeaways from this program. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Can you tell us, uh, tell our audience real quick how they can find out more about you? Yeah. Um, so the CPA firm is Crafter Your Own Burger uh, and uh, CRBCPA.net is the website of the firm. But actually, I would direct you to our consulting site, is, which is a little bit easier to really kind of see what we do is simplenumbers.me. And so that uh, that's our philosophy. So that's the website for the book. It goes over some of our consulting services. There's some free resources on that page that you can download of, of things that are not only in the book, but also from some talks and things that we've done. Uh, so there's some video links out there to interviews and other things that we've done as well. So I, I think I would probably say the simple numbers me is, is probably the best site to really kind of sample, you know, what we're about and why we exist. Uh, and uh, happy to, to invite anybody to check that out. Awesome. We will link out to that as well. Greg, thank you so much for stopping by the program today. This has been uh, very educational. I have a couple pages of notes here for my own business. Hope our listeners do as well. So thanks again for stopping by. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that is our program for this week of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content to help you grow your agency and achieve the freedom you want in your business and life. Until then, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched? fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge is blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. 
the aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show.